welcome or welcome back to episode two of season one of the Primrose Chronicles, entitled From Trike to Bike to Three on the Tree. Hi, I'm your host and narrator, Marty Young, and I'm glad you're back for another excursion into the decade of the 1950s and 60s and the area of Primrose Avenue near northeast side of Indianapolis, epicenter 4425, the Young family abode. Last time I tried to paint a picture of that domicile as representative of others on Primrose, and today our travel log expands. After arriving on Primrose, the two oldest young kids, Nancy and I, even at ages five and seven, began to explore our new permanent surroundings, affectionately called over time the neighborhood, and later as we moved away, the old neighborhood. The pace of that exploration was directly related to our modes of transportation, and the boundaries of travel were broadened because of both the ease of and permission to travel in them. When Primrose was new and unfamiliar to the young family, I had scooters and wagons and skates to get around. But for a brief season, I piloted a crazy four-wheel contraption called an Irish male, M-A-I-L. Not to be confused with an Irish male, M-A-L-E, the likes of which would have been Liam Neeson, Bono, Colin McGregor, and C.S. Lewis. Not sure how the M-A-I-L ended up in our possession, other than ever the wheeler dealer, Dad traded something for it, believing it to be the proper vehicle for his eldest because he'd had one as a small boy. I venture to say many of you listening have no idea what an Irish male M-A-I-L was, but don't feel uneducated or lacking in cultural awareness. I can probably count on one hand the number of Irish males M-A-I-L that I've seen and still have a thumb left after counting. Realizing that lack of awareness in my listenership, let me briefly describe this childhood vehicle which originally came from across the pond. The body of the cart was slightly over two feet in length, wide enough for a single seat. Extending forward beyond the frame was a wide axle with two wheels, and in the back, two wheels were on a rear axle. Arising from under the body was a pipe, atop which was a handlebar, and it was here that the Irish male became unique. Instead of using the handlebar to steer, the young driver used it to provide propulsion. You see, the handlebars were connected to a rod beneath the frame that extended to the back and attached off-center to a gear in the middle of the rear axle. Moving the handlebars back and forth, front to back, the rear gear rotated, the wheels turned, and the Irish male, M-A-I-L, moved forward. The faster the handlebars were pumped, the faster it covered the distance required. With all that healthy upper body exercise, the question then became, what do you do with your feet? Simply put, you rested them on the front axle and steered with the appropriate deliberate pressure left and right. But unlike a steering wheel or handlebars, you push the axle with your right foot to go left and vice versa. Since a bicycle was not yet on my horizon, at least it wasn't a tricycle. Nancy at age five had her cute pink tricycle and we both were allowed to ride down our double driveway shared with the Kleins along the sidewalk past our house, then turning around in the next drive north. Then we headed back the same course to complete the lap, and I put many miles on that approximately 250-foot course, most of the time racing, sometimes crashing, turning the Irish male over with sharp turns and dropping off the street curbing into the gutter. If mom and or dad were enjoying a nice tea and cigarettes on our front patio, the course extended for me, all the way past the drive north to 45th Street and the corner, but never crossing 45th and coming back never going past the Kleins on the south, 
because of the high hedges surrounding their yard and the home at 4417. Those obstructions, plus the fact that neither of those homes had kids when we first moved in, meant they might exit their drives not looking for many speed racers. Recalling the early years, I'm so grateful Dad brought home that Irish male, M-A-I-L, because even as a seven-year-old, I knew that trikes weren't cool, especially for second graders who were taller than their second grade teacher, Miss Worth. Actually, there were three of us taller than she, including a girl, but that was still a measurement for me that I was a big kid. And big kids didn't do trikes, even big wheels. But when the weld finally broke on the male's propulsion rod, it began a period of walking, and as we got to know our neighbors, the scope of my pedestrian wanderings expanded beyond the hedges to down the street and even across it, and even around the bend. We had gotten to know our neighbors, and I made new friendships. Tim Connolly, four doors to the south, Dale Taylor, catacornered from us across Primrose, and Bob Bossler, down on 44th Street, the bend, and the possessor of the clubhouse. Even though he lived the closest, I wasn't allowed to go to Dale's much and never into his backyard. It wasn't a trust issue. Mom liked Dale, and my folks enjoyed his folks. She just preferred he played over in our yard. You see, Dale's dad owned the Shell service station at 46th and Old Highway 47. And in the Taylor backyard, there was always lots of cars on blocks, engines on hoists, and auto parts soaking in gas. All of that combined to convince my paranoid mother that I'd get lockjaw if I played over there too much or be pinned under a fallen engine or a dropped car. Mom rathered I play, really, with Tim, who also had a protective mom, so they seemed to be on a similar wavelength. I liked playing with Tim because he had every piece of John Deere and International Harvester farm equipment Tonka toy imaginable, all items his folks had bought for him from the annual Indiana State Fair. Also, his house was different than the typical primrose cookie-cutter home. The Conley residence, 4409, had been remodeled as a two-story bump-out with dormer windows facing the street and a large two-story family room, bedroom, kitchen extension. That addition to the little box house originally identical to ours made it twice as big. As impressive as the structure was by comparison to all the homes on all sides, I was most drawn to the mound of dirt left from the add-on excavation piled in the backyard around a large, old maple tree. This became a unique landscape that could be covered with either the Tonka brand miniatures or, more often, plastic cowboys, Indians, and soldiers in an expansive theater of combat manipulated by two or more elementary boys all over that hill. Mom was comfortable with me playing there because she knew Tim's mom and could phone or, more often, yell over our side fence across the next three yards of airspace and reach me to come home for a meal. The only caveat to that was I had better answer and I had better come immediately. She did not want to get the same reputation as the mother of twins across the street, Foghorn Martha, who allowed her two little ones to wander wherever and merely stuck her head out the front door, and let loose with a cattle call out that was heard for a block radius because of the volume, the pitch, and the length of the call. Mom was not about to be likened to such as that. Mom also knew Bob Bossler's mom, Claire. The Bosslers weren't technically a Primrose family living on the bend that was 44th Street, but their place at 1613 was visible from the sidewalk in front of our house, 
so my early boundary extended to there. Mom must have really felt comfortable and had a kinship with Mrs. Bossler because she didn't usually just make a phone call to get me home from there. She'd walk down with Nancy in tow and Dave in the stroller just to talk to her through their back door screen. And this allowed me some extra time in the clubhouse that Bob's dad had built behind the garage. As a result of the clubhouse, by the time we were fourth graders, Dale and Tim, as well as Hank Unser, Bob's next-door neighbor and myself, we had all become unintended adopted sons of the Bosslers, and the clubhouse became our second home. I digress toward the Bosslers at this point because Bob B. played a very significant role in the further expansion of my boundaries, as this next tale will describe. I think it was more financial than anything else, unless it was my mother's you'll shoot your eye out and break every bone in your body paranoia, but I was in fourth grade and still hadn't learned to ride a bike. I hadn't even sat on a two-wheeler except a girl's bike that Mom had gotten for her neighborhood excursions from Aunt Dorothy and my cousins Betty Ann and Sue. Little alone fact, my mom herself did not drive a car until my brother Dave came along and she couldn't push enough strollers or have enough car seats on her bike. Anyway, like mom, I was a late bloomer. With me, it had to do with self-propelled, bi-wheeled transportation. One spring evening in my ninth year of childhood, after supper was gulped down so I could get back to the clubhouse, the gang left the Bossler backyard out the rear gate across the trail that held its own adventures over many years and then down onto the field, which belonged to the Indiana State School for the Deaf. The field, as it was known by every Primrose family, was a great place for kite flying, pickup baseball games, walking dogs, and building ramps to be jumped with bikes. The latter is what everybody was doing that evening. Everybody but me. We had spent the last several days after school building ramps at the Bosslers, and it was now time to try them out. Everybody but me. After an hour of observing, Bob actually took pity on me. He was probably looking for a good laugh. But anyway, he offered me his 24-inch Huffy or roll fast, I don't remember, to try. Bob was just a little guy, and I'd eventually have a full-size 26-inch Schwinn. No slight intended, this is just the facts. This evening, there was a pause in the ramp jumping as my efforts were about to be observed. The rest of the guys probably remembered the times they'd crashed and burned learning to negotiate the world of balance over two circles of inflated rubber and figured that the big backward lummox from up at 4425, albeit their buddy, might be good for a laugh. It was then that I got the last laugh. On to the bike I got, and off on the bike I went, managing the narrow fulcrum of two tires while balancing atop my new steed. Even on the rough terrain of the field, I couldn't believe it. In one brief moment, my clipped wings had grown out, and I was free on a buddy's borrowed bike. Without even asking, I headed down the field to Ralston, up to 44th around the bend, and up the sidewalk, triumphantly cruising past the homes on the west side of Primrose. As I hoped, Mom and Dad were on the patio across the street as I whizzed by and raised a quick hand in a gesture of half-wave, half-victory, and shortly thereafter, my boundaries expanded again. Nothing would be the same. In fact, from that point on, the boundaries expanded rapidly from around the block to down to the fairgrounds to over to the library, if you tell us where you're going, to Arsenal Park, 
and the Little League Diamonds, the daily location for summer pickup games and evening organized baseball contests. Soon thereafter, several of us rode our bikes to School 91 every morning, beginning with a few of us on Primrose and picking up others on Ralston and Kingsley and Crittenden and into the bike racks on the 91 playground, reversing the routine when school was out. Summer even afforded early morning bike rides to swim lessons at Broad Ripple Pool. Then there were the years when the tension between freedom and the open road made possible by our bicycles juxtaposed with the desire to be cool, suggested by others who walked everywhere and posed a conundrum of sorts. At times like that, the style of bike determined if bike riding was acceptable. For several years, a candy apple red 26-inch win with white sidewall tires was my ride of choice. It lost some of its coolness with the wire baskets mounted on the rear fender. They were great for carrying school books and newspapers, but admittedly a little nerdy. But it was new, bright, shiny, and mine. I had picked it out and paid for it myself. In the world of finance, this was my first experience with installment purchases and indebtedness. Signing a contract to pay $1 a week for 52 weeks to the local Schwinn Bicycle Shop, 42nd in college. I made the payments promptly every Saturday morning after I settled my accounts with the Indianapolis News, with whom I was initially employed as a deliverer of the daily evening paper to 26 households on Primrose in Ralston. The paper was delivered Monday through Saturday. Then I expanded my route into Marcy Village, next street to the east, and then the late evening Blue Streak News, which was all over the northeast side. Finally, I took an early morning, Monday through Sunday, Indianapolis Star Route, and that's where I made the big money. My bike was not only a tool used in my newspaper employment, though. As I became a freshman in high school, I still rode my bike the five miles to Broderpool High School when weather permitted. A number of tales will be told concerning riding public transportation, from the bus stop at 46th and Primrose to College Boulevard, transferring to another bus that made the rest of my daily school trek. North on College, then right on 62nd Street or Broadripple Avenue, arriving in front of Broadripple High School, the home of the Rockets, allowing about 10 minutes for me to get to my locker and on to first period. A brief note of that alternative mode need only be mentioned here because it will provide tales for another episode later. Remind me. Those years transportationally, like many other expressions of my early teen experience, were often confusing and racked with anxious questions. In this case, it was, how would I get around in a fashion that was functional, but acceptable to my image-conscious and difference-condemning peers whom I perceived as superiors and whose favor I wanted to curry? Enter the automobile, into the personal life of one particular primrose teen and his contemporaries. As everyone knows, the greatest boundary expansion, the most daunting fence to vault, comes at age 16 when car meets driver's license. Of course, I still did it backwards. Dad found me a sweet deal on a 1948 Plymouth for $65. This was in 1963. And I owned it for a full year before I had my license, beginners or otherwise. I logged several hundred miles in that driveway, I think, waiting for the big day, and I probably lowered the life of my rear tires when I learned how to burn rubber between the street and the backyard fence. For now, we're going to forget the catastrophes that were learning to drive a manual transmission with the famous H pattern with reverse up, 
first down, second and third, with my less than patient father, and also forget about my first two failed driving tests. Don't ask. And let me just say, when I finally passed the driving portion, a new era of freedom and escape was born. Shortly thereafter, one after another of my buddies in the neighborhood got their own licenses and subsequently their own cars. With the boundary expansions that came with those wheels, by the time I was now a driver, Broderpool High School meant new friends, and all of Marion County, with a little bit beyond, became my galaxy far, far away. I guess you could say we had a loosely formed car club. It included my 48 Plymouth, Greg Sam's 1950 Chevy. It was won for a dollar in a raffle at the high school during lunchtime. It's worthy of its own story, but not today. Then there was Stan Ward's 1955 Chevy and the class of the club, Dan Strainy's 1956 Chevy. Strainy's was the class of the club until Larry Mills had full access to first his dad's 1962 Corvair Monza Spider and then his 1963 Ford Falcon Futura Sprint. We took turns going out on the town in each other's cars. The choice, sometimes based on where we thought we'd cruise or end up, Partially, though, it was based on who had gas in their tank. After all, at 26 cents a gallon, no one of us could afford to be the ride all the time. It was not unusual for the Primrose Gang to add members from the outside the neighborhood over time. Long-lasting buddies, always referred to by last names, were, of course, me and Mills, then around the corner, Ward on 45th, Strainy up the block on Ralston, and off and on, Sam's. From the 4500 block of Primrose, Strainy lived behind Sam's and they had a path between their two houses. By junior high, Bossler and Taylor had moved to better neighborhoods. Dale farther east and even another school district, Bossler north, but still at Broderpool. At different times, it was expanded by church friendships like Brian Wright at 49th and Ralston and James Coltrane at 51st and Crittenden. Lastly, there were also friends that were made at school like Steve Barnes, but unless they ventured onto Primrose and became regular drop-ins at our house, they were just friends. I can honestly say every guy I've mentioned thus far was one of my best friends and closest buddies for some period of my Primrose years. Without them, Primrose wouldn't have been Primrose, and these chronicles would be missing a few episodes. Generally, a summer evening was spent cruising. Through the parking lots of Steak and Shake, Dog and Suds, Nobby's, Frisch's Big Boy, A&W, Merrill's Heidecker, and the Teepee, which were all Northeast Indianapolis hotspot drive-ins. The former four were more or less equal in nightlife and activity. And then A&W was more or less out of our league, except for a brief pass-through, just to say that we did it. That was because, of all the drive-ins, A&W's draw was more for the hardcore car clubbers with seriously sweet rides. Only the finest of custom cars parked for a root beer and fries at A&W. On the other hand, Merrill's Heidecker was the coolest. Mostly because Jim Shelton, WIBC Radio, broadcast from the Glass Booth Studio on the roof. Thus the Heidecker each evening. We backed our cars into parking stalls around the lot where he could see us, and we could hear him on our AM car radios. He'd play the top 40 record hits during a show called Platter Party, and an audience participation activity every night was make it or break it. Talking to other guys in other towns later in college and adult life, 
I think every city had its variation of the show, but Jim Shelton, 1070 AM WIBC, had it for Indy. In Make It or Break It, he would play a couple of new 45 RPM hits, and after each song nightly, you'd turn on your headlights in the parking lot at Merrill's Heidecker as he instructed. All who thought it would make it, lights on. All who thought he should break it, lights on. By popular vote, as he looked around the lot, each song would then either go into his future playlist or he would smash it with a hammer on the air to the delight of all tuned in that night in the lot and across the city. An evening at Merrill's Heidecker was magical, whether with a date or just your buds. It was also expensive. You had to keep ordering food and drink from the roving car hops to keep your place, and there was a minimum purchase to begin with. So Merrill's on 38th Street was a highlight, not a nightly routine. A cruise of all these drive-ins would probably connect us with carloads of guys we knew and girls we'd like to, and there was no better place for that than the teepee, 38th and Fall Creek Parkway. Many a car chase through the streets and neighborhoods of the northeast side started after a few loops around the teepee drive-in lot until a carload of giggling girls pulled out, stopped in front of us, and begged to be chased. And off we went. Usually up Fall Creek and north on Keystone, then past Glendale Mall, where suddenly the carload of girls would turn into one of the many subdivisions east of the boulevard. Sad to say, since they knew where they were going and we didn't, they always lost us eventually. It's probably a good thing. Not sure we knew what we would have done if we caught them. Those were good nights, and there were lots of them. But then there was the night that Randy and Stu Jackson entered our cruise world and for a time became a greater threat to our peace and security than the Red Menace with the atomic bomb or facial acne with its own explosions. And that's the story for next time. So be watching for its launch, Lord willing, next Thursday noon, Mountain Daylight Time. Before I go, I truly would like to say thanks for the warm reception this series has received. I'm trying to answer all the texts and personal messages and emails in a timely fashion. It has been gratifying to hear the positive reactions. There's now the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page with pictures and articles that will go along with the various episodes. There will also be advanced notice of upcoming stories there, special announcements as well as regular posts and bonus chronicle recordings. That's all in the offing. The number of entries will grow with the number of followers, so check it out. You can also write me direct at theprimrosechronicles at gmail.com. And by all means, leave a review or a rating on your listening platform of choice. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Amazon Music. Just search The Primrose Chronicles to find me. That family of social media platforms will be expanding soon to include a website, a YouTube channel, Instagram, and Twitter. All that will be announced on the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page as well. Until next time, wishing you a pleasant stroll down your own boulevard of remembrances. Where life's a holiday, life's a family, life's full of fond memories just like my Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue. Blessings. Blessings.